0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton finance professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, SiriusXM channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisantry. My co-host is Warren Fights Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. I'm gonna be joined for this show with by Keramar Siscano who's an associate on my research team. Karen and I are registered representatives of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to WisdomTree. Our discussion is not tied to the office of investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Tree affiliates. Wow, Professor Siegel was on the money last week. We talked about a hawkish surprise, uh, and the Professor nailed that call. We're going to talk to him about his view on the Fed, the inflation coming up. Professor, I've got a lot of questions that came in on the Fed policy, so we may have a little conversation here. And then we're going to be talking with Jamie Metzl, uh, on biorevolution and some of the developments on, on that side. But, Professor, well, tell us about the Fed. Well,
2: I, I had a feel that there were going to be a number of members that uh, had gotten feedback from their district saying, hey, guys, there's inflation out there. And even though that uh, would not become a consensus on the statement, uh, the opportunity to put your dot down on uh, the projection, uh, uh, what's called the dot plot, was going to make waves, and it did. (laughs) And then, of course, uh, afterwards, uh, Chairman Powell talked it down, and uh, he was, you know, and the markets recovered. Uh, And then this morning, James Bullard was on, um, and I, um, uh, you know, James, uh, who's the president of Federal Reserve of St. Louis, has been on our program, what, four or five times, Jeremy? Uh, at least. And I you know, I remember interviewing um, uh, 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 James Bullard, uh about, what, four months ago? I'm not exactly certain. And I was very surprised how sanguine he was about inflationary pressure. So today, uh, and I was listening to him, I said, oh, yeah, now he's got the message here. And I think uh, other people said, just a minute here, he's not uh, talking the way Chairman Powell talked right after the meeting. And we're going to be hearing from something like 10 or 12 uh, of the uh, uh, members and, and, and bank presidents uh, next week. And they're going to express their opinion about being on alert. But I, I thought what was very interesting, he said, yeah, inflation's coming in much hotter than what we had anticipated. Um, and, uh yeah, it, it, it certainly is. So um, I, I, it's just a matter of the market uh, coming to grips with this. Now, you know, yield spiked on the 10-year, then came back. Uh, but yield spikes on the shorter terms have not come back. Now, you could say, how does that happen? Well, if I'm a long-term holder, I want the Fed to move against inflation. Because ultimately, by just letting this run, 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 I know I'm going to get into trouble. So, you know, I've long taught about the fact that, uh, you know, a Fed rate hike is actually ambiguous for the long end of the curve. And, you know, you can get buying in on a on a on a Fed hike if it if it's if it's uh, regarded as an anti-inflationary move.
1: Um. So I, you we, we had a call this week and I heard you say, when, you know, the the dots, you know, don't really talk yeah. about liftoff until 2023. You think they might have to taper and, and then even raise rates much sooner than right. they're letting okay. on. Right, okay, here's my timetable. I
2: believe they will
1: announce within the next two and a half months, they have a July
2: meeting, and then they have the August meeting that's in Jackson Hole, uh, where they can start giving, you know, signals. My belief is they're going to start tapering. Uh, they're going to give a schedule of the taper before the end of the summer. Um, I believe the first rate hike... Will definitely not wait until you know uh, 2023. I think it's going to come in 2022. Uh, and by the way, if inflation runs as hot as I anticipated, uh, in the next uh, SEP meeting, uh, which I believe is uh, you know at the very end of September, I believe that I wouldn't be surprised if there's a dot for the, for this December that we should raise a quarter percent. I mean, I, I think we should. But uh, that would be that would be aggressive. But I think you're going this is a steady march towards being more aggressive um, and you're going to get that signaling uh, on CNBC. When I was on on Tuesday, Uh, you know, I called uh, this a taper tremor, not a taper tantrum. I said what you're going to see is a tremor, (laughs) which is a little milder than a tantrum (laughs) uh, because, uh, you know, it's the rumblings of, of what they should be doing. Um, uh, I, I, you know, to say they're behind the, you know, the ball here, um, yeah, but they can, they can, they can catch up. Uh, as you and I know, my belief is that uh, a cumulative 20% inflation, um, a plus or minus five, uh, over the next three, three or four years is actually baked in right now. What we want is to make sure it doesn't get out of hand and we can go back down towards
1: the two the three
2: percent inflation, which I think the Fed is going to be targeting uh, uh, later on.
1: Now, the tremor seems to have hit the reopening trades, like the commodities, the small yeah. caps, anything that was up the most seems to be reverting. Is that just because the natural rotation of the tremor? Do you think there's something more going on there?
2: Yeah. Now, you know, you would think, my God, higher yield, that's bad for tech. Well, there's a couple things happening. I mean, a lot of these combined stocks that really in materials, etc., and reopening had run way, way up. Um, and so I'm not surprised to see, you know, what we, we sometimes send a little back off over here. Um, uh, you, you know, I mean, the, the claims came in a little bit higher. There's a little bit of a, maybe a little softer tone uh, to, to, to uh, some of the recent, Retail sales. Now, retail sales were a disappointment this week. Um, they, they were, however, uh, revised up in the past, but the momentum going into the third quarter is a little bit lower. So I think there's a little bit of a sell-off on on, on those. I think they're going to resume uh, on that. Uh, and, 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 and the strength of the dollar. The foreign exchange market wants the Fed to tighten. The dollar moved up. Uh, and I think that that uh, certainly is going to hurt materials. I mean, they're traded on an international market. So if the dollar is strong, you're going to see weakness. You're going to see weakness. I mean, you know, the weakness in, in gold that came in right there was really very much of a, of a dollar strength uh, reaction on the foreign exchange market uh, over there. So there's a, there's a little bit of rebalancing. These have very good runs. Uh, but I think, you know, I think the the, the, the trend's uh, uh, that we saw in place earlier this year will will resume um, uh, during this period of more talk on tightening.
1: So a few questions came in. One was, and I, and I actually saw Kyle Bass on CNBC make a, a, a related argument that the adjustments, you know, you talked about, Kyle Bass talked about the chain linking and CPI and sort of quality... Yeah improvements sort of change what the inflation is and, and he says well the real inflation is much much higher and, and somebody else asked like is the real inflation much higher in your view than than even what's being being talked about
2: yeah and i heard that and very honestly i i, I think i think he's i i think and i would have to talk to him more that he's misinterpreted a chain there, there's something called uh quality adjustment and he, he i think he used the the example of cars, you know, they're not the same cars, and you know, cars today cost forty thousand, which cost you know fifty years ago ten thousand, and they say there's no price increase because we have so much. A car is so much different today. I mean, this is this this what's called quality adjustment that constantly goes on. That's that's a little bit different than the chain linking. The chain linking has to do with what do you regard as your base set of goods, uh, and uh, do you change them as uh, a, a, as, as, as prices, uh, uh, change. Uh, and, and the Fed is at, I mean, the, the, uh, the BEA, the Bureau of Economic Analysis is actually taking care of a lot of it. Uh, actually, uh, um, so I, I don't think inflation is higher. Well, I'll tell you what I do think. The way they calculate inflation puts things in in, in uh, a, a slow way. Housing inflation goes in very slow. The 20% increase that we've seen in housing prices, uh, existing homes, all the rentals and all that are going to slowly seep in, and housing is a huge part. So there's a lot of things that go in in a weighted way, and it, they're going to build up uh, and and get in. It's The index will get to where it, it needs to go, but um, I think that a lot of those increases that we've seen are going to be finding their way in in the next three to six months, particularly in the housing area, which is so very, very modest increase, uh, uh so far, and uh, I think will show increases because, um, you know, clearly it's hard to have 20 percent increase in the price of homes and not have some increase uh, uh, in rent uh, when costs go up.
1: So there are a few other questions. Two of them are related on why are yields still so low despite these pressures. But the what the question that somebody asked was, is high government debt to GDP ultimately deflationary um, since rising rates on debt could could cost us more? This is sort of Lisi Hunt's big theory on sort of yields continuing to drop with the, the debt to GDP.
2: Yeah. No, I actually think high debt, everything equal, is not deflationary. Because the, the 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 thing that sort of serves as an inflationary accelerant is if interest rates go up and the cost and the cost of the debt, which is a major part of the budget, goes up, and that puts more stress and means you've got to float more debt, um, and that means more Federal Reserve pressure to buy and more money in the system. Uh, so, you know, uh, everything equal, in my opinion, more government debt. is is more inflationary. Um, More consumer debt may cause people to pause purchases because uh, um, I I might feel more in debt. Um, But more government debt, to me, is not uh, a deflationary force.
1: So how long is our tremor going to last, Professor? Is it a a (laughs) three-month scenario?
2: Those who live in California say that you can have periods of a few days for those tremors. One person said, well, Dr. Siegel, a tremor, uh, it it could either be a prelude to a big quake or it could die out on its own. Uh, uh, I I think, um, you know, let's face it. It's better for the market to have a, a whole series of little tremors, release that pressure on the fall, rather than all of a sudden, you know, uh, by surprise Powell comes in and says, Okay guys, you know, you know, we're we're down, we're not we're stopping the purchases, we're gonna hike in six months, blah, blah, blah. And that that is that that is a uh, a taper uh, tantrum, uh tumult uh earthquake. Uh and you and you don't want that. You want these little hints along the way um uh, as I say, I, I still believe, I, I, I listen, I think Paul is an excellent uh, chair, chair Fed, but I, I think he is buying the staff's opinion that this is all temporary. And my feeling is that there's a lot more permanent going on here. This is not going to be terrible for stocks. This is not going to destroy the economy, but it's got to be dealt with by the Federal Reserve.
1: Well, Professor, we're lucky to have your comments, uh, and and our listeners were warned. So uh, thank you so much again for joining us, and and, and congrats on a great call.
2: Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you next week
1: see you um i'm going to turn over our conversation to i have jamie metzel um who is a he his bio is, is quite large so we'll, we'll just give a, a quick shout he's an author technology healthcare futurist also geopolitical expert he's getting a lot of uh p- press focusing on how he was one of the first to talk about covid 19 where it came from calls for the origin of that coming from a lab uh we, he's also a strategist and, and has helped work with WisdomTree. We have launched a bio-revolution fund, WDNA. Uh, I read Jamie's book, Hacking and said, wow, this is a really interesting story. That this should make for an interesting basket of, of stocks. And, and we connected and, uh, and so now have this ETF in the market. Uh, Jamie, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thanks, Jeremy. Happy to be here. Maybe you could give our listeners um, a little bit about your background, how you first got into studying all these uh, the biology issues back in your, your national security days.
3: Uh, sure. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Yeah, so it was, it, for me, in, uh, in the 90s, in 1997, I went to work on the National Security Council. When, after I graduated from uh, law school, I did my PhD and then went to law school. Um, and I worked for uh, a guy who's a, really a brilliant person who became a mentor and, and now a very close friend, Richard Clark. And Dick, in those days, I think everybody, many people know who he is now because he was the Cassandra, in many ways, who had predicted 9-11 and had done so much to try to prevent it and ultimately wasn't successful. But what Dick always used to tell me is that the key um, to having a, an outsized impact, both in Washington and in life, is to try to see around corners, to see things that other that in the future that other people maybe weren't seeing or weren't seeing as clearly. And I really took that to heart. And as I looked around the world in those days, almost 25 years ago, I kept coming back to this conclusion uh, that the genetics and biotechnology revolutions were going to fundamentally transform so many aspects of our lives and and world. And we all weren't thinking about it enough. Uh, we weren't preparing for that in what I felt was a, a sufficient way. So I took it upon myself um, to, to learn everything I possibly could about biology, uh, genetics, all of the, the set of technologies and the, and the broader issues surrounding them. And when I was ready, I started writing uh, articles about the big picture implications of the genetics and biotechnology revolution. And those started to get a lot of, uh, of attention. I was invited to testify before Congress and other things. And when I was doing all of that writing and speaking, I felt like I, what my message wasn't getting through because I felt that these technologies were going to be so transformative that we didn't just need to be thinking about them in the science world and in the regulatory world. But this was something that was going to be part of, of all of our lives. So I'd already written two books, one of which was a, a novel prior, uh, prior to that. So that led me to write my two near-term science fiction novels, Genesis Code and, and Eternal Sonata, about the big picture implications of these, of these technologies. And when I was on my book tours uh, uh, talking about these novels to get people ready, I, I gave them the history and the story of the very real science and technology issues. And I could see in people's eyes that when they understood what was at stake, this story, they recognized how personal uh, this story was, uh, was to all of them. And that led me to write the, the book, that Jeremy, that brought you and I together, Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering and the Future of Humanity. And then in, in all of that uh, process, um, I was invited by the World Health Organization to be a member of their expert advisory committee on, on human genome editing. And I'm involved with a lot of, of other things in this space, including becoming in, in some in ways, certainly... Uh, One of the leaders of this effort uh, to raise uh, important questions about the origins of the pandemic and call for the kind of comprehensive investigation that can help us understand what went wrong so we can fix our greatest problems. But the highlight, Jeremy, has been when, when you and I connected in this great and exciting work that we've done together.
1: Yeah, we're going to drill into a lot of details, but maybe if you could, and you could, we could have a whole show just on the pandemic and what's going on there, but if you had to summarize where you think the geopolitics are today, uh, what happened last year, what's happening now, if you, if you just boil it down very quickly, well, so we could focus on uh, the biorevolution story, but on your take on the geopolitics, what's, what's going on in the world today with, with, with the relationship with China and all this, how, how, what's, what's happening?
3: So this is a really important story. So China is obviously growing very quickly. Uh, It's becoming a much more powerful country. And there's a lot of that story that's very positive. In many ways, we don't live in a zero-sum world. If anybody invents some great new technology anywhere, we can all be beneficiaries of it. Uh, Many people, particularly in China, hundreds of millions of people have risen out of abject poverty. Uh, But as China grows, Um, It is uh, behaving in some very aggressive ways in in many parts of of the world. And the United States, which I think probably the crowning achievement of the United States, is helping build, leading the process of building what we call this this post-war international order, which some call it this world of globalization. But everything that we have of trade and the Internet and just this idea uh, that we can be stitched together around a common set of norms and it's highly, highly imperfect, but it's a, really a crowning achievement of the United States. And as China is pushing into that space, there's a real question over whether China is, uh, is going to work to strengthen a system that benefits everybody um, or it's whether it's going to see the world in a, a zero-sum manner uh, that, that harms the rest of the world. And I think there, there, there are examples of both of those, um, certainly in the South China Sea where there's just a massive land grab um, that's an example of, of zero-sum thinking, but maybe in climate change or some other areas, there are greater opportunities for uh, for collaboration. And in the context of the pandemic, all of these issues have been uh, brought even to um, to sh- into sharper uh, relief. Um, first, there's just this basic question of where does the pandemic come from, and and I've been one as as, as we've said, calling for a full investigation. China uh, is is blocking that. Um, but whatever our, our views, and certainly tensions between the United States and China and Europe and China are, are, are growing, China's not going anywhere. Uh, and so while we definitely need to have a world that's based on common standards of behavior, not just for others, but for ourselves as well, um, we, we, we can't just pretend like China isn't there. It's a big, important country, and we need to find the best possible way of cohabitating.
1: Yeah, I'm sure we, we should come back to this story uh, or the future of how it's progressing and, and what you see developing there. So uh, I'm sure we could drill in there a lot more. But let, let me just reintroduce, we're talking with Jamie Metzel, who is a special strategist for Wisdom Tree on our Biorevolution Index and, and fund. Um, Jamie, let, let's talk about the advances in technology that facilitated this sort of rapid evolvement in genetics that you think is sort of... And, and just the DNA sequencing, how that's all shaping where these biology trends are not just going to be healthcare. I mean, talk about how it all came together yeah. And, and,
3: and. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So thanks, Jeremy. I mean, it's such an important question. When people think about the genetics revolution, most people think about healthcare. And certainly the tools of the genetics revolution and the, and the biotechnology revolution are already fundamentally transforming healthcare, care. And, and the, the shorthand that I use for that is we're moving from a world of generalized medicine based on population averages. Like when you take a Tylenol, uh, the regulators have decided, well, Tylenol uh, help most people, but there are some people who will die or could die from taking a Tylenol. And you find out in our generalized medicine system by taking a Tylenol. In our world of precision or personalized healthcare, which we're moving into pretty rapidly, uh, your treatment is based on not you being a human, but based on you being you. And so how do we understand who you are? Well, there are lots, there's lots of highly relevant information, your family history, your life history, your biometric uh, information, but probably the most important piece of information is your sequenced genome. And so the technology for I even mean, it's been you know, decades more than a century for under, just understanding what genes are and how they function. Uh, it's been really half a century uh, where we have rapidly improved our ability to sequence genomes, and so and that is is skyrocketing. The cost of sequencing a genome is um, is decreasing at a much 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 faster rate than would be the equivalent of Moore's Law. Um, so we're, we're, we're moving toward uh, the whole genome sequence, which is kind of the gold standard at really a, a negligible cost. Um, but then just sequencing genomes doesn't tell you anything. You need to compare the genetic information and the life information, what we call the phenotypic information, and that yields insights. So in the world of healthcare, maybe some people have heard of these new uh, technologies like CRISPR genome editing there are whole fields of under, using our understanding of biology and complex biology uh, to grow uh, new types of cells. It's called regenerative medicine. And so that's the, that revolution is transforming healthcare. We're seeing it in the gene therapies that maybe people are reading about. Certainly, we're seeing it in the vaccines that um, my guess is most of your listeners, Jeremy, have inside of their bodies, which are truly miracles, uh, because certainly the mRNA vaccines, we had to understand how the cells work, we had to understand the code of how uh, information is being passed within our cells, then we had to find out how to rewrite that code and inject ourselves with a new set of instructions for our bodies to do something that they weren't designed to do, which is to create uh, the equivalent of the spike protein from the virus and trigger the immunological response inside of our bodies. So the healthcare revolution is incredibly exciting, but the same technologies that underpin this healthcare revolution, this is about our ability to read, write, and hack the code of life. um, Those technologies have equally massive implications for all other areas where we are interacting with living systems. And so certainly in agriculture and food, Um, There are just radically different ways of doing agriculture, uh, ways of completely disrupting, for example, how we use fertilizers and to be able to grow uh, plants safely uh, with much reduced use of uh, of fertilizers uh, to grow meat uh, through cellular agriculture. So right now, if you love animals, you probably don't like industrial animal farming because it's cruel uh, it, it certainly harms the animals. It harms the environment. It spreads uh, uh, resistance to antibiotics. It has all kinds of negative ex- externalities. And so now we're able to, to um, use cellular cultures to actually grow cow meat. I mean, it's, it's meat that's grown, and if you, um, but it's, and, and we, that will lead that. We have um, what's called clean meat. Uh, we have um, uh, uh, vegetable-based meats, uh, like I think many people are, are, are having those, the Impossible Burgers and other things like that. Uh, maybe people have had Oatly, these alternative milks. There are lots of ways of achieving the pretty much almost the exact same outcomes, but doing it in a more environmentally safe way. And I get this, is, it's, it's a little scary uh, for people, um, but I think going to an industrial farm would also be scary uh, for people. Uh, lots of, of materials uh, right now. For a lot of our raw materials, what do we do? We cut things down, we dig holes, um, and that's it's expensive um, and it's environmentally harmful in, in many cases. Sometimes we go to wars uh, for for oil. All of these things we can, we don't need to extract. We can grow. We can generate at much cheaper costs um, and and with with much higher and consistent quality standards. So we're going to see over the coming uh, years and decades a real revolution in material science, in energy, in data storage. Maybe some people heard the story of of finding uh, this uh, frozen DNA from a mammoth from a million years ago, and uh, it was able to be essentially decoded and sequenced and read. Imagine if your iPhone um, uh, came back in a million years. How much of that silicon would be readable, none. So DNA is a million times denser than, than silicon. So DNA, data storage, all this stuff, it feels like sci-fi. And as, he, as we said, Jeremy, I'm a sci-fi writer. Um, but the balance between science fiction and science is is really, those two things are, are coming together. And so one of the reasons why I'm so excited about the Wisdom Tree Biorevolution Fund um, is it really is is focusing on this mega trend uh, not just the healthcare which is is huge and, and significant um, but that that the same technologies and in some cases even the same people working on the same uh, technologies from healthcare are uh, are pioneering some really exciting new developments in other sectors and the, and the fund is is designed uh, to capitalize on those on those sectors and on the broader megatrend as it plays out over the coming years.
0: Hey, Jamie, it's Kara. Great to talk with you. I know the topic of genetically modified food or cellular agriculture can, you know, raise red flags for some. So I would love to get your thoughts on how, you know, the applications of the biorevolution can actually be viewed as a, as a positive from an ethical perspective. Um, I know one thing you've mentioned is helping address nutritional deficits right. and, and subjects like that. Yeah. So w- thanks for that, that great
3: question, Kara. And, and I think for all of us, we have things that we are familiar with. And then and we start to feel, well, the things that we're familiar with are natural and doing things in a different way aren't natural. So if you go, Kara, to your local Whole Foods and you go to the fruits and vegetables uh, uh, section, there's pretty much nothing there, uh, maybe a few things, but pretty much nothing there that would have looked familiar to our ancestors twelve thousand years ago, uh, because pretty much all of the fruits and all of the vegetables are the result of the work of our uh, of our ancestors, and what they did, knowing nothing or very little about genetics in the early stages, they did selective breeding to for desirable traits that's how wolves became our our dogs. Um, and and then um, in the in earlier in the in the middle of the 20th century there was a new model uh, of well let's just bombard seeds with radiation and make a bunch of crazy changes and then test them all and maybe you know now and again you'll find something exciting like seedless grapes which is where, where those uh, come from and so now um, there's the, 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 there's a whole field of saying well we we can understand the genetics of different plants, and it's not it's not GMO, where it's not transgenic, where you're taking something from one plant and putting it into another plant, or an animal into a plant in, in some cases. It's just saying, well, how do we understand the genetics of this plant? And if we want to have one desirable outcome, and that desirable outcome could be a familiar crop is able to grow in, a, in an environment where, because of climate change, things are getting warmer. And so we're able to potentially save millions of lives by just speeding up a process that could also happen naturally. It just would take many de- decades and cause millions of, of, of deaths uh, potentially through through famine. Like, is that an okay thing to do? Is it okay um, to, to just think a little bit differently about, for example, soil nutrition and plant nutrition, because we know there are some plants like Legumes that we can grow, and they replenish the soil. And there are some plants uh, like wheat um, that we uh, that we grow, and they it tr- they uh, take the nutrients from the uh, the soil, which is why we have to grow legumes. Are there ways of thinking differently about soil nutrition through the manipulation of the mi- of microbiome? And so I think. And then finally, as I as I mentioned before, and I I, mean, I could talk about this for for days. Um, right now, we're all very comfortable when we go to our local, um, our local supermarket um, getting meat uh, or milk uh, that come from industrial farming, and industrial farming um, has a lot of cruelty uh, into it. We, we uh, pump up these animals with antibiotics um, because the conditions in which they're living are so dangerous that without it, they would get sick, and it also makes them grow faster, and that creates antibiotic resistance. Um, we're poisoning our uh, environment. Um, we're uh, it's it's quite cruel to the uh, 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 to the animals. We're using huge amounts of land uh, that could otherwise be used for all sorts of purposes, including by planting more trees and, and uh, which uh, and so there's all these great things, and we're not loving these animals uh, because you know the average dairy cow or the the average cow or pig or chicken that's born to be slaughtered in an industrial farm. We're not loving those animals. We're treating them as a means to an end. And so if we had the ability to grow either plant-based meats, which are very, very similar with high nutritional, uh, very high nutritional value, equivalent taste, equivalent look and feel, um, or if we are able, at which we are, to cultivate uh, essentially meat from stem cells without even harming the cow or the pig or the chicken, but just to grow meat, um, it seems like that's a good thing to do. Uh, and the cost will, will relatively quickly, it'll become less expensive, uh, especially if you factor in all the uh, externalities and growing these uh, these animals with the sole purpose of using them for food with all the waste um, of the parts of their bodies that we're not even using for, uh, for food. So I, I do think that these things, Kara, tend to shift. And right now, I think there's a little bit of an uncomfortable factor. People are kind of used to the way we've done agriculture, or the way we've done farming. Uh, but I think in a very, very, very short number of years, um, we're going to see a pretty significant generational change, which has already uh, begun. Uh, we're seeing it with Oatly. We're seeing it with Impossible Burgers. We're seeing it with, with lots of things where people want to have the nutritional benefits. They want to have high-quality food. They want to protect the environment, they don't want cruelty to animals, they don't want to spread antibiotic resistance. And I think it's it's just a win-win-win. And there are some really fantastic cutting-edge companies, Um, and those are the ones that we're bringing into our our basket of companies in in WDNA, which is really exciting. And these these non-health sectors of the genetics and biotech revolution are just growing with incredible speed. And that's, that's the energy and the vitality that I think we're trying to capture.
1: This has been great. And, Jamie, to your point on it sounds like science fiction when you talk about growing animals uh, sort of farming, it, it, it really does sound amazing uh, and unbelievable, but uh, it, it's, it's becoming reality. Um, we're talking with Jamie. We're going to have him for the rest of the program. Cara Marciano also with us. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, who's Behind the Markets. Uh, Cara, maybe we could talk a little bit, about the index and the exposures, Um, you know, when people think about biotech, there there often is a focus on genomics and genetics, which was the focus uh, in in a large part of Jamie's book. Uh, But it's sort of often very narrow to either very deep dives on genomics or broader healthcare. How would you describe sort of this index uh, and and where how it differs versus what's out there in the market?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So as Jamie mentioned, the impact of the biorevolution. And healthcare, I think, is well messaged and, and understood. It's the impacts outside of human health in areas like Jamie highlighted, agriculture, materials, chemicals, and energy aren't fully appreciated today. So if we look at our index, 20% of it is outside of the human health sector. When we compare that to other strategies in the biotech, genomic healthcare space, At most, those strategies have 0 to 2% outside of these sectors. So really trying to get exposure to the entirety of the biology revolution, which we really want to emphasize is not just human health, it's not just biotech, but those other sectors that Jamie has highlighted throughout the show. So, Jamie, I would love to get your thoughts on the trends you're seeing um, in agriculture and food, materials, chemicals, and energy, even uh, the biological machine space either in the private or, or public markets and, and why this really is the the part of the basket that is positioned for outside growth.
3: Well thanks so so much Karen. And I think what you just said, it's it's really an essential part of what we're of what we're doing here because this story it's about these underlying tools that are letting us do things differently and interact differently with the living world. We humans are part of the living world and we really care a lot about our health and our healthcare. And the United States is spending around uh, around 18% of our GDP on healthcare. So there's been a big push and the resources um, to support that push in healthcare. Um, But these same underlying technologies, and as I've said before, and, and it's so connected to what we're doing, um, will drive these other these other sectors. They're already driving these other sectors, but there's just a slight um, lag in in the maturity of those uh, of those companies. Um, and that what we're seeing, though, because there was so much upfront investment, particularly in the human health sector and in, in a lot of the basic uh, the basic sciences, uh, sciences, it's in many cases the same technologies and the same people. Who are coming out of the healthcare world? Who are leading innovations in these other in these other sectors and um, alternative food, which we talked about uh, before, um, and we talked about uh, cellular generated meat. Uh, a lot of the pioneers are people who were doing tissue, working in tissue engineering, human tissue engineering as part of uh, human healthcare. There's the whole field of regenerative medicine, which is really exciting in, in healthcare. And they said, well, wait a second. If we can grow human cells as part of somebody's treatment for some kind of ailment, um, like liver disease or or something else, um, we can grow all kinds of cells. And that's why we're seeing all kinds of really interesting new companies that are just thinking differently about how we make things, how we do things. And so in agriculture, um, as I was saying before, um, we have uh, fertilizers, which were really fantastic. I mean, the reason why uh, we can have almost 8 billion humans on planet Earth um, is because of the innovations that we've had in farming in, uh, and um, particularly our ability to use fertilizers and uh, to grow uh, to grow our, our, in, our farming output. I and mean, there are a lot of of strong arguments for different models of farming, sustainable farming. But the reason now we have we can can have so many people is because of these uh, the use of fertilizers. Um, but now with these new technologies, we aren't going to need fertilizers um, because there's a lot that's happening in the interaction uh, between the cells that are lining the roots of plants and the microbes in the soil. And so we're seeing companies. Um, that have the ability to, to disrupt in a beneficial way the entire market of fertilizers. And that's really, really exciting. Um, right now, um, we have, I think it's, I don't know, don't quote me on this, but it's about 25% of the market um, for, um, in the United States is for these alternative milks, plant-based uh, uh, based milks, like uh, Oatly is, is a good example, and there's almond milks and, and, and other things. Um, but we're re- really right on the verge of being able to generate cow's milk without the cow, uh, just from the cells, essentially through the proce- process of fermentation um, using these, uh, these culture cells that come from milk. And there will be some people who will say, well, why would we, would we do that? Um, certainly... Uh, the life of a milking cow um, average cow lives about twenty years. milking cows uh, tend to live around five uh, we've bred them to be so huge they all have arthritis it's not nobody should volunteer to be a, a milking cow um, but it will ultimately i think we're going to, when you take out when you we're going to be able to do it higher quality, higher protein level, uh, higher safety uh, cheaper uh, cheaper over time. so there are a lot of just different ways of doing these same things and so all across the fields of agriculture and food and we could go on uh, forever because there are so many exciting companies There's, there are companies uh, that are making uh, beef uh, uh, without cows but it's exactly beef milk uh, without cows that is exactly um, that's exactly milk uh, fish we have uh, some fish some fish are being uh, fished uh, to extinction um, but we're going to be able to make fish that tastes like fish, it feels like fish, not because it's mimicking fish, because it's fish. It's just rather than the, through the bioreactor of the fish, it's through the bioreactor of the, bio, uh, the bioreactor. The same kinds of, of technologies are changing the way we think about plastics uh, that can be made uh, from living materials. Um, uh nylon made of by understanding and and brewing using the genetic code of spider silk uh, and for each one for each one of these big ideas there are five or ten really interesting companies um, that are that are charging forward uh, where there's some really interesting ipos um, there are companies that are working in the field of Synthetic biology, so two that are, are really interesting. Um, one is uh, is uh, Twist Biosciences, that's in in the basket, and Ginkgo BioWorks, which um, uh, they they just gone uh, public through a through a SPAC. Uh, but these are really interesting companies because basically what they are telling most other companies that if you are producing most of anything, there probably is. A cheaper, better, faster way to uh, to access those raw material inputs, and it's not by digging things on the other side of the world and shipping them here. It's by creating them, brewing them, by understanding their, the genetic code that creates those inputs and growing them. And so that's uh, that it's, it's like a, it's a big idea. But it's a very, very practical idea because in our global competitive world, for a lot of the things that we do, um, there are cost pressures uh, and we need to keep costs down We need to keep quality high. And it's not that that all of these technologies, I mean, some of them are are expensive now, but the cost curves are going down so quickly uh, that the revolutionary companies in agriculture, in food, in materials, in energy, in even in, in data storage, Um, They're they are already there. They're growing very rapidly. Um, Some big winners are already emerging. um, And that's what we're doing. And that's what that's why this kind of our process of of keeping an eye on the best, uh, the best companies um, that are uh, that are getting the public companies that are growing is the work that I think is makes this so exciting and, and makes it so that we're really thinking about where is this revolution going and how can we ride the wave of that really exciting and positive future?
1: We're, we're talking with Jamie Metzel, author of Hacking Darwin, a bunch of other books, uh, and a special strategist for Wisdom Tree. Uh, Jamie, it's, I, I was going to ask you to expand on the manufacturer, but I think you touched on it. And I think human health is the big one. Uh, and, and certainly you, you should have talked about the mRNA vaccines that we all have. Is there a set of... Of, of technologies that you're the most excited about and where technology is going um, and 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 sort of specific subsectors of the human health theme that you would oh, say, yeah. is is interesting.
3: Absolutely. So so the mRNA uh, revolution isn't just about vaccines. It's a whole new way of delivering treatments to the human body. And so we're going to see, not just, which we will see, uh, lots of new, great vaccines, um, but we're going to see really exciting new treatments using the mRNA platform for different kinds of cancers, for all kinds of diseases, many of which um, weren't considered um, uh, treatable in the past. So that is, is, is really exciting. But as I was saying before, um, this, uh, our ability to just understand what's happening inside of the human body on a molecular level to translate that into the the language um, of essentially of of code, um, and then to be able to to hack that code in ways that we're already seeing through gene therapies, um, which are ways of essentially either fixing genetic abnormalities that people have for blood disorders and other things, or understanding, well, if you have some kind of abnormality, it's because your cells aren't producing a certain kind of protein. So can we either jumpstart your cell's ability to produce that kind of protein or produce the protein itself? So this whole transition that I was saying toward this world of precision medicine, which is based on the intersection of these different technologies, the intersection of understanding uh, through genome sequencing and other means, understanding how our bodies are working, finding the right intervention points, um, and that's with the, certainly with the gene therapies, the mRNA uh, platforms, and lots of other things, and then finding, well, what is the minimal essential intervention? And then one other thing is that as we learn more, we, it's, it's that humans, in many ways, we are a massive data set. Uh, because because of uh, we're moving toward a world where we're all going to have our genome sequence, we're going to ha- all have electronic health records, we're going to have these big data sets. and we're going to, to, know, to be able to understand more and more patterns. And that's going to shift us uh, from our world of healthcare where you go to your doctor when you have a symptom, to knowing from very early on in life, well, what's, what's the range of possibility on, our, on all sorts of things, including human health? And so, this trans, I know we think about healthcare as some kind of expensive intervention later in life when you have a problem. Um, but I think we're going to shift towards something that's really positive, which is thinking of healthcare as a way of management along the way in order to optimize benefits and minimize harms. And so we don't, we don't need to go all, I mean, there will be incredible, and there already are incredible interventions to do miraculous things, but part of this understanding can be integrated into our daily lives. Uh, and so I think there will be, there already are some amazing companies doing really exciting work on curing previously uncurable diseases, but there will be more really exciting companies that are just going to help us live our lives in ways that prevent us from having bigger problems uh, down the road. And so all of these things are just, I couldn't be more excited about it. And it really, it feels to me, and I say this all the time, that for the genetics and biotech revolution, it feels to us like a lot has already happened. But this is the equivalent of the earliest days of the internet revolution, the earliest days of the the steam uh, steam power revolution and industrialization, where there was some pretty cool stuff relative to the, to what had come before, um, but the the transformative changes um, that I think that were coming then and are coming now had yet to be realized.
0: Thanks, Jamie. And with I think just a few minutes left, I just wanted to to talk about the parallel. Advancements in things like AI and and this human health application the article you were sharing shared with us earlier this week Had a lot of information on DeepMind this this part of Google that's able to understand how or predict how proteins fold and Just wanted to, to get your final thoughts on on how all of these different technologies yeah. are collaborating together
3: yeah, it's such a great, uh, great question, Kara. People think of these technologies as different things. We have the computer revolution, we have the AI revolution, we have the biology and genetics revolutions, but really, what we're talking about is one interconnected revolution. That we needed the computer revolution to under to have the new skills of pattern recognition and, and deep learning, and it's those uh, those capabilities are enabling us to understand the complexity of biology and then that understanding of compl- complexity of biology is then informing how our computer networks are working how we're designing computer chips so it's really it's a super convergence of multiple technologies which is making the rate of, uh, of change accelerate and that's when people call ex- uh, say exponential change that's what they mean and the, and what it, the what the real world implication of that is that problems like understanding how proteins fold and how proteins fold feels very technical, but it's really important because the folding of our proteins, um, the fold uh, within our cells, has a, a big implication for how our cells function. But we haven't been able uh, to figure out much of how uh, of how that works. And now uh, Google DeepMind, which is Essentially, it's it's the, the the company based out of London. Uh, they built a supercomputer uh, that beat the world champions in chess and go and Goji and kind of lots of these other games, figured out a new model um, for how to understand protein folding, which unlocks all kinds of, of applications. And again, making the point we've discussed earlier, not just in human healthcare, but understanding, how proteins fold has huge implications for all of our other sectors, for agriculture, materials, energy, uh, uh, data storage. And that's why I think our, our core point is there's one big uh, revolution. And not only that, um, the same uh, DeepMind company, uh, they asked these computers to, to try to solve the, this problem of how do, we make, how do we just make the designs on silicon computer chips better? And uh the the uh, the AI designed in a way that no human would have ever done much more efficient silicon chips just by by, by yeah.
1: We're running. We're at the end of the show. Uh, I, this is great. You can see why we uh, we love working with Amy. Uh, it's been a f- fantastic tour of what's going on in the BioRevolution Index, WDNA, the fund that tracks it. Because we talked about Wisdom WisdomTree's BioRevolution Fund, WDNA, I need to read, read a quick disclosure. There are risks associated with investing, including possible loss of principal. The fund invests in biorevolution companies, which are companies significantly transformed by advancements in genetics and biotechnology. The biorevolution companies face intense competition and potentially rapid product obsolescence. These companies may be adversely affected by the loss or impairment of intellectual property rights and other proprietary information or changes in government regulations or policies. Additionally, the biorevolution companies may be subject to risks associated with genetic analysis. The fund invests in securities included in or representative of its index, regardless of their investment and the fund does not attempt to outperform its index or take defensive positions in declining markets. The composition of the index is governed by an index committee, and the index may not perform as intended. Please read the fund's prospectus for specific details regarding the fund's risk profile. Investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risk charges, and expenses of the funds before investing. To obtain a prospectus containing this and other important information, please call 866-909-9473 or visit wisdomtree.com to view or download a prospectus. Investors should read the prospectus for specific details regarding the fund's risk profile carefully before investing. Uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. Thanks to Jamie, Kara, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks, producer, Patty Hall, who listens to us for Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Jeremy Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show.
0: For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.